Today's dead idea, serfdom, the legal condition of being tied to the land you live on. And we're doing an epic series on Russian serfdom, and this is part three, story time. Today, we are going to hear stories from actual serfs. All these stories come from early 19th century serf autobiographies. We actually get the words from the serfs themselves. It's crazy. It's awesome. And the stories that we'll hear today focus in particular on serfs' interactions with their masters, sometimes at a distance and sometimes quite directly, but always told from the perspective of the serfs themselves. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, whose handiness with a sickle is so sexy. <laughs> uh... <laughs> you know, we learned last time that uh, the surf brides were valued primarily for their labor capacity. That's how you chose your bride. So. Well, as long as we don't invoke Cronus, I'm guessing yeah. that can go on. Yeah. She, she is good with a sickle. It's hard to argue with. Yeah. Mm. I'm BT Newberg. You can call me Brandon. With me today are my co-hosts for the day, Anna... At your surf is. <laughs> and Sorry. Nick. I've just been trying desperately to remember all the puns that I made in the last episode so I don't repeat them this time. That would be <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> all right, let's get into it. So these stories come from the book Four Russian Surf Narratives, translated and edited by John McKay. Except for the two, which are by Perlevsky, which come from A Life Under Russian Surfdom, translated and edited by Boris Gorshkov. I'm sure that was just a sea of author names that flew by you, but whatever. You can look it up later. Now, all of these are just little vignettes, and I actually have three short featurette stories and one feature-length story comprised of several linked vignettes, all by the same author. Is there a newsreel? <laughs> there should be. And a montage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and also, just like we did in the Miasma series... For the featurettes, I am going to give you your choice of which ones you want to hear first. Whitman's we'll assortment. See <laughs> we'll, yeah, exactly. We'll, hopefully we'll get to all of them, but we'll see. Anyway. Okay, so here are your choices. There are three to choose from. Your first choice, managing the commune. So the surf commune. Remember, everybody, mm -hmm. that we are, not, we are not to communism yet. That comes well after serfdom is abolished, but the serfs... Sometimes they would be idealizing the surf commune, and sometimes really not. The later communists yeah. did, yes. But well before they ever existed, then there were surf communes. It was just a way that they organized their villages. So managing the commune is the first choice. The second choice, with two fingers. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Probably less dirty than you might be thinking. I bet Nick can guess what the two fingers might be about. Uh, we will let that be part of Nick's arcane knowledge until we get to it. Oh, such arcane knowledge. <laughs> uh, and your last choice is how to be a clever surf. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So of those three, which featurette would you like to hear first? I'm voting for either clever surf or uh, arcane knowledge myself. The with two fingers one? Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's go with clever surf. Clever surf. Clever surf first? Okay. Okay, how to be a clever surf. So this comes from a long work by a surf known to us only as Peter O. And it's actually written in verse, believe it or not. Huh. What? <laughs> Which is, he was a clever surf. Yeah, and it's, clearly. And it's not very good verse, at okay. least not the translation <laughs> in English that I'm reading. <laughs> but it's still impressive. I'm only going to read a tiny, tiny snippet of this. Um, to mainly to spare you of all that uh, not very good verse, but <laughs> also, is the translation rhymed? No, no. Fortunately, no. Yes. Are, are we talking like sub Macklemore? Mercifully, like... no. Ooh. <laughs> uh, but anyway, before before I tell this little snippet from the poem, I have to tell the story behind the poem, which is almost better than the poem sure. itself. Because it's frankly amazing that this poem ever saw the light of day in the first place. So, here's the story behind the poem. In behind 18... the music. Peter <laughs> O. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Peter O. Unplugged. Yes. <laughs> and then, 
a year from now, we'll have Peter O. Where are they now? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Spoiler okay. alert, still a surf. <laughs> so anyway, in 1849... So actually, possibly not. Oh, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah, 1849. Yeah, getting towards the end. Yeah. They were emancipated in 1861. Right. Yeah, so, so we're getting close. Yeah. In 1849, the main post office in St. Petersburg received a thick packet addressed to a certain liberal-minded noble named Prince Peter Gorgiev Oldenburgsky. Very well pronounced. Oldenburgsky. <laughs> You're welcome. Oldenburgsky. <laughs> Who was a relative of the Tsar. That's probably the main reason here, but also the liberal-mindedness. Anyway, but, however, the post office workers noted that the half-literate-looking scribbling on the package, its cheap paper, and the fact that there was no sender's name listed, all seemed very, very suspicious to them. So they did not send the packet on to this nobleman. Instead, they just, they kept it. And they figured that the sender would return for it, but the packet was never claimed by anyone. So it just languished at the post office for seven months. Finally, it was sent to the dead letter office, which is sort of the final resting place of everything that's just left over and never delivered. So is this a magical realism story? It sort of sounds like it. This part is the actual realism, not even a story, but this is like the real actual fact. So it's it's, basically it's scheduled to be destroyed, right? Mm -hmm. But however... According to standard practice, before burning all of these packages, they must be opened and inspected. And that's when they found this, a notebook full of verses. And the opening of the notebook read, This book, called News About Russia, a great (laughs) title, (laughs) really off to a good start, is taken from the life of the Mir, which is the surf commune, Mm -hmm. right? From the deeds and words of the people with an appendix in verse by Peter O. I would now like to dedicate my verse to the sovereign Emperor Nikolai under the following conditions. Number one, that he read everything contained in the manuscript. And number two, that after reading it, he not persecute the writer. Without prior agreement to these conditions, the manuscript is not to be read by the sovereign emperor Nikolai I and his exalted royal family, but consigned to the flames. The writer of the manuscript is a half-literate serf belonging in body to a lord, but in soul to Christ Peter. You know, it's amazing. The internet didn't exist back then, but this already feels like somebody's, you know, really basic html script on their like <laughs> yeah so this yeah. is this is creative commons here yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just like this is my personal homepage. do you only can read this under the following conditions <laughs> it, it's beautiful it feels like we have a sense of continuity with the is past. there bella Leica playing as soon as you go to the website yeah, yeah. there probably is in a little checkbox saying please click to view, certify that you're 18 years old and can see adult content and that you will not persecute this surf <laughs> exactly all this right. page has had 684 visitors since. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they all flogged me. None of them read the conditions. <laughs> they all just clicked agree without reading it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So the basically, this work totally could have just been burned without anybody ever reading it, according to the author's wishes, but it wasn't. Instead, it was turned over to the third department, which is actually something like an ancestor to the KGB. I don't know how close or not, but Hmm. something like that. They examined the hand of the writer and compared it to other works, trying to root out who this seditious troublemaker was, who went to all the work of writing a poem exposing serfdom and its, you know, tragedies. But alas, they could not find the author, and it was filed away in a third department archive. So again, it could have never seen the light of day. Right. Not until 1961 was it finally discovered and published. Oh, wow. Yeah, 1961. Unfortunately, like I said, most of it is pretty drab and very confusingly written. Um, But here is one snippet that is interesting. In this part of the poem, an old serf father gives advice to his son on how to be a clever serf. (laughs) All right, so here's what he says. So listen to my words, and I'll tell you how to be a clever slave. Be able to control yourself, contend against caprice and sloth with reason's help. Have the knowledge to distinguish bad from good, 
and save your money for when trouble comes. Don't lost yourself on crooked paths and have the wit to live within a faithless world. Learn to serve both kinds of people, bad and good, but cling yourself to the path of truth. When happy, never mingle pride into your joy. It's pride that turns into madmen. Deal gently with your fellow man. Gentleness for us is wisdom's way. Learn how to live in slavery and how to honor the pomieshik when you stand before him. Learn to seem like an idiotic beggar, but hide from him your mind and actual condition. So the pomieshik, if you all remember, is the landlord, mm-hmm. right? The noble landlord. And interestingly, he's like, look like an idiot in front of your landlord. Right. <laughs> kind of presumably so he doesn't like tap you for more odorous works, you know, within his hierarchy or something or yeah also don't send packages yeah don't send your poetry to yeah. your landlord <laughs> yeah don't 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 uh think that a little condition is going to keep you safe yeah <laughs> why did you leave that part out of the poem he goes on hide everything each time you're asked the reasons why you're living as we do hide it till the day you die and be aware that even decent people can be spoiled by envy even those who are smart can be consumed by hatred everything you must conceal from everyone of lower rank, from elders, sotskis, which, do you remember what those are? Um, uh, they were the uh, sort of enforcers? Yes, yeah. yes, your character was a sotski. Damn straight. From elders, sotskis, neighbors near, from all the world's eyes, no less. I see the poor and how they judge a man who tries to rectify his fate through deeds or with his mind. Suddenly his fellows envy him, they crush him. All around he hears abusive noise. They curse, and as a single crowd they long to fall upon him. Yet they do not always find the strength to stamp the favored one back down into the mud. So the mirror is full of playa haters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly, playa haters. He's sometimes given the blessings fate had promised him, and when a new man's what he's become, he'll pay no heed to this malicious world and cast no glance toward the groaning poor and will be prideful all the same. This new proprietor will have no sense that he's a sinner. Of his desiccated virtue, scarce a single drop will fall upon his servants. Now become a parsimonious manager of property. Himself he suffers day and night. He's clearly become oppressor of the poor himself, burning all the while alive in torment. Wasn't this The weekend's latest album? <laughs> <laughs> I find this really interesting because it started off as this really pretty kind of like straightforward droll, like be honest, tell yeah. the truth. And then it end up like totally like become Scarface of the surf. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Yeah, paranoid. Yeah, it's like, yeah. it's like avoid the hating of the poor who won't like your good fortune, but then you'll wind up in torment from... Yeah, I mean, it just it's like a rant that just kind of goes like totally off into the weeds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's like, be good, be honest, do good to everyone. Don't let your landlord know that you're clever. Act like an idiot in front of your landlord. Everybody's jealous of you. Everybody's watching you. <laughs> fuck them. Yeah, it is <laughs> but a then fuck gonna, you. I'm going to get mine. Everybody, I'll stamp you under my foot and... Bam! Drop the mic. Yeah. So well, that, that is that is usually how what, how people start talking after they've been drinking when the <laughs> when the advice part goes into the you know the, the the point where you suddenly remember you have grievances. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't. <laughs> All right. So that's how to be a clever surf. Uh, the other two featurettes that we have to choose from are managing the commune and with two fingers. Which one is a better one to end on? Hmm. Eh, half dozen of one. Six to the other. Yeah. Well, I'm a little curious about the fingers. Should you do the fingers? That's what. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> That's what the surf said. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's do with two fingers. <clears throat> it's never not going to be funny. <laughs> so this is from the memoirs of Dmitrievich Pirlevsky a surf from Yaroslavl province, which is northeast of Moscow. Mm-hmm. And he describes the reaction when the estate that he was living on, which had formerly been owned by a prince who largely ignored it, came into the hands of a merchant landlord, so it was sold to this merchant, who demanded then his dues in money, which was unusual because usually dues are paid either in kind, meaning you deliver goods like grain or 
um, furs or whatever it is you produce, yeah. mm-hmm. or else labor in, sure. in the fields and whatnot, but not usually coin, but this merchant wanted actual cold hard cash, which is not easy to come by mm. if you're a serf. Okay, so here's from uh, Perlevsky. He says, From the time the rich tax farmer bought the estate, peasant life took on a different form. Unbound freedom turned into slavish obedience. Reproaches were heard from all sides regarding the peasants' past deeds. Rural bureaucrats began to visit the village endlessly, with or without reason, and practically lived and ate there. Now there was no longer any princely protection. Now everything had to be paid off with money. The new owner set up a cotton mill on the river near the village and forced everyone who could not pay the designated rent to work there. In other words, almost the entire estate. So basically, this is when your company is bought out by a venture capitalist firm that hires a consulting agency to come and... Or your country is bought out. I mean, somebody's elected. I mean, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Only then did the senior people realize that in order to get rid of the heavy corvée, which is the labor, Mm -hmm. one needed to seek a means of making money. But in contrast to the old days... People went too far to the other extreme. Everyone began to care only about himself, resorting to any small-minded calculations and any means to get money. Then, realizing their past miscalculations, the elderly men began to say, God is angry with us. Our life has been made dismal because of our sins. And others would add, God is angry against us not for our imprudent behavior under the prince, but because we cease to believe in the old scriptures. We've been ruined by the Nikonshina and life with tobacco users. <laughs> <laughs> and shortly after we finish this, I'm sure we'll get to hear from Nick what the Nikonshina was all about. And then Perlivsky continues, Homegrown intellectuals even began to speak about the last days, about the seal of the Antichrist, and about the imminent appearance of the beast with the title 666. However... The contemporary priests not only paid no attention to the state of people's minds, but themselves further demoralized the peasants by their own way of life. These ignorant rumors reinforced the schism among all who revered the importance of Christian ceremonies. Speculations about crossing with two fingers and performing church services according to the old texts preoccupied all weak minds, and especially women. (laughs) <laughs> so who's writing this out of this guy Perlevsky, a former surf okay yeah yeah so male obviously yeah. yeah although we will hear from a female surf in our feature about time yes okay so basically long story short right their estate was owned by a noble that gets sold to a merchant the merchant wants coin demands coin that nobody can pay and then says, okay, if you can't pay, you have to work in my cotton mill. That's how I get my labor. Perfect scheme. Right. Right. Everybody then blames not the uh, glorious um, schemes of a certain capitalist, but crap. Everybody's been worshiping the wrong way and we're all going down the wrong road. That's why this happened. How did we get here? Emails. What's this <laughs> thing about a Nikon China? I bet that Nick can explain. Well, what's the date on this? Uh, awesome this case. would be, I don't, the, oh wait, here we go. Memoirs of Sava Dmitrievich Perlevsky, 1800 to 1868. Okay. Yeah. So. That's the best I can tell. No, that's, I mostly just wanted a century because that's actually kind of super interesting because the schism he's talking about, which I've mostly heard, this will come up in later bits too, mm-hmm. under the term of Roskol. Roskol? Roskol is the Russian word for schism. Oh, okay. So I don't know where the Sheena comes from, but I guess maybe that's the old believer term. Was a good 200 years earlier than this. Mm -hmm. It's apparently, I would have thought everything would have settled down by the 1800s and you'd either be in one camp or the other instead of still thinking. It's a schism of? Of the Russian Orthodox Church. Of the Russian Orthodox Church. Based around? Whether you do it with two fingers or three fingers. Exactly. (laughs) Crossing yourself with two or three fingers, right? And then other minor liturgical kind of things that seem minor to us, I should say, but obviously did not Didn't seem minor at all, at all at the time to them. Yeah. Everything's gone to crap. We're doing something wrong. It's, it's how many fingers Maybe it's that. Yeah. 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 And also... It just seems... Yeah, go ahead. Unexpected to me that there's... And really interesting that there's that much speculation of 
well, things are going badly, so maybe all those wacky old believers were right that they've been doing these things right for the last couple hundred years and we're doing this wrong and God is punishing us. Mm-hmm. Although I'm sure that was probably an old saw that had been used for every time things went bad. Sure, over since, and over yeah. Every again. 15 minutes, yeah, probably. But probably, yeah. I guess not having a sound grasp of economics and predatory behavior. Well, it, I mean, having the grasp doesn't necessarily have anything to do with it. It's what can you do about it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. What you experience is... Your life is going to be completely under someone else's authority anyway, no matter what. You don't have any options about this. And previously it was the under the authority of someone easygoing and nice, and now it's... Who was content to be paid in services. Yeah, someone predatory and horrible. Yeah. You can blame them however much you want. That doesn't help. I think they had plenty of experience with predatory behavior. It's just a different kind of predatory behavior than they're used to, probably, if you were on a you know, a farm or something. So speaking of which, cotton? Yeah, interesting, right? Hmm. You wouldn't think of that for Russia, well, but it's a big place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm looking at Nick now. <laughs> um, well, that's a completely different history that has to do with all of Russia's wars in Central Asia when they were conquering um, Khanate of Kiva and Bukhara and things, which coincidentally happened right around the same time as the American Civil War. They oh, conquered right. all bunches of stands that had become Uzbekistan was the main one, but also I think bits of Kazakhstan and bits of Turkmenistan, mm-hmm. which were perfect cotton growing areas. And after, because of the civil war and cotton supplies not coming from the American South anymore, actually Russia was the main producer of cotton for the world from then and ever after. So that's an interesting They context. were the cotton country. That's... Seriously? Yes. Yeah. Oh my god, I didn't know that at all. So that's why the new landowners basically wanted to be paid in something else. Probably. Yeah. Well, Although... Another really interesting connection between Russian serfdom and American slavery. Yeah. Because it, huh. it's like, hey, you know what? If we can get our serfs to completely work on the cotton, we've got basically a bumper crop going. Although not exactly, because again, that didn't really take off until after, right around when and after serfdom was abolished, because oh, right. it was coincidental with the American Civil War. Yeah, I don't think there was ever serfdom in those Stan area, yeah, areas that you were talking so about. Much. Yeah. Also, basically, okay. where the RLC went. Well, anyway, thank you for that background, which was way more than I was expecting. So, okay, cool. We've got one more featurette before we get to our main feature story. Managing and that the is commune? Managing the commune. Which, a desirable job or an undesirable job? What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. It just kind of sounds like office manager. I mean, yeah, pretty much. you're going to be ordering the carbon paper and fixing the copying machine. And... <laughs> I thought this is under contract. Why does it keep doing this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's find out. So this one is also from the memoirs of Dmitrievich Perlevsky. Um, like I said, a serf from Yaroslavl province northeast of Moscow. And, uh, Are weak-minded women mismanaging the commune and homegrown intellectuals causing trouble? We'll see. <laughs> Mark it off on your bingo card okay. if they are. Mm-hmm. Ooh, um, free space. Anyway, he describes his time on his estate, which was called Velike. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gets appointed to the management and tries sincerely to work for the people in this position as a manager. So he's not following the regulations of how to be a clever serf. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, but uh, he frequently frequently finds himself stymied at like every turn. And this vignette describes his trials and tribulations that will sound familiar to anyone who has ever tried their hand at any kind of public service. So this is kind of like the Parks and Rec kind of okay. <laughs> story of serfdom that we have for this episode. Okay, so Perlevsky writes, Around this time, our communal management became more and more chaotic. The peasants' complaints about the bailiff annoyed the landlords to such a degree that they finally ordered the estate management office to appoint me as a bailiff. I was to take charge of all forthcoming communal affairs and to ask the former bailiff for detailed reports about all previous activities in village life. Although this prestigious assignment certainly flattered my self-esteem, it hardly made me happy. Indeed, it scared me because I had no experience in village governance And in light of my objective view of this matter, I repeatedly implored the landlords to spare me from the new responsibility they had imposed on me. They disagreed and kindly confirmed my appointment. They suggested that I find a responsible, knowledgeable assistant, 
so that I could continue my own commercial activity without hindrance. This solution allayed my concerns and allowed me to undertake the new tasks in addition to my existing ones. I began to dig into communal matters. When I studied the commune's outstanding affairs, various abuses came to the surface. They were so serious that the former bailiff even voluntarily returned some of the communal money he had spent. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. To my misfortune, under cover of submissiveness to this lot, he became very hostile toward me. <laughs> so that's kind of where the start of his things, yeah, troubles begin. So basically, straight off the bat, Perlevsky's already got a nemesis in this story, mm-hmm. right? No, the former bailiff. Yeah. yeah. But I don't want this job. Yeah, well, you got it. Too bad. Fortunately, this guy isn't able to do much against him, but nevertheless, Perlevsky does find plenty of opposition in just trying to make honest efforts to improve the place, even a little. After initial success in setting up a school, which he does actually manage to do, he decides, ooh, a trade school would be even better. Because after all, in Velike, the ground was never really very good for farming, and um, because it was in that region called the non-Black Earth Center, mm-hmm. um, where it was much more like trade and industrial later, right. rather than agriculture. And the serfs there have always engaged more in commerce, so a trade school would just be common sense, or so he thinks. All right, he continues. Unfortunately, this idea met with no success. (laughs) (laughs) The landlords refused to donate 5,000 rubles in cash, and the village communal assembly denied the approval and even openly resisted my plan, regarding it as a king of corvée. (laughs) Which... Corvée being that forced labor. Right. So they were just like, no, we ain't having this. <laughs> I suppose they figure some kind of scheme because whoever tries to help the serfs. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're just conditioned to be suspicious. So anyway, next he notices that the village where he lives doesn't have a medical facility. And most of the locals rely on quacks and snake oil salesmen. But he dares not even bring it up to the village commune after his previous experience because he knows of their deep suspicions about that as well. So instead, he goes straight to the landlords, who send a doctor at their own expense, to their credit. It takes a while for the locals to warm up to the doctor, but eventually they do actually come to appreciate him. And then finally, he has the idea of improving the local cottage industry of textiles. So actually, one, a couple of things actually do work. The school mm-hmm. worked, and the doctor, over time, they've finally kind of get to know like hey this medicine woman gal is actually not bad you know yeah this is the thing that really seems like it should be a period drama (laughs) exactly frontier russian surf village doctor right (laughs) so anyway finally he has the idea of improving the local cottage industry of textiles and this is what we conclude with he writes from time immemorial in my birthplace velike women had been highly skilled in producing fine linen cloth which was famous everywhere for its quality. This woman's labor was fully rewarded until foreign technical innovations developed cheaper and improved modes of production. In the face of this competition, our women should have taken advantage of their previous profits to develop new methods, investing in infrastructure, as we know it now. But instead of doing everything they could to readjust their work to the new conditions, they tried to serve their own interests by adding cotton threads into the weft. At first, they earned huge profits from doing this because even a skilled dealer was unable to notice the fraud. Oh, mm. I got it. Yeah. So the cotton is a cheaper fabric. Oh, they were using linen before, right? This uh, Linen. Yeah, Lip, so lip. they're adulterating the fabric. They're yeah, exactly. Cutting in baking soda. Yep, exactly. Yep. <laughs> but, of course, the admixture became apparent when the product was put to use. We began to lose our reputation for fine linen cloth, to such an extent that people stopped buying it. Thereafter, I made a plan and suggested to the commune that it forbid this evil fraud. At first, no one seemed to understand me. They could not see where their real advantage lay. I took my concerns to the village's chief management, and not only did they pay no attention to the issue, they returned my papers to me with a reprimand and prohibited me from bothering them in the future with, quote, ideas of this kind that can disrupt the collection of rent. End quote. I would think that no one buying your linen kind of disrupts the collection of rent. Yeah. <laughs> just just a thought. It's just a very different mindset, you yeah. know? Just 
you know, when you're, when you're not raised into like a business mindset and, you know, a lot of us in America do have that kind of privilege, that kind of like, uh, what do you call it? Cultural capital. It's hard to kind of imagine a different mindset, you know, but it was totally different for Cirrus. So where did this guy get his fancy book learning and city ideas? Yeah. Well, he, as it said, he had these other commercial interests, mm-hmm. um, which he had been doing even before he was a bailiff. And like he actually had to get the other assistant to take some of his bailiff duties so he could continue doing his commercial trading. So I think that he was born into that kind of a family, sure. probably. This sounds kind of frustrating, yeah. Yeah, the Parks and Rec story mm-hmm. of our of our episode today. <laughs> So anyway, are you ready for our feature presentation? Okay, so this is a series of four linked vignettes from Notes of a Surf Woman, all by the same author, M.E. Vasilyeva. Okay. Yeah, so not only do we get the words of an of actual serfs themselves today, but a, a woman author, which is super rare, right? Mm-hmm. It's one of the very few surf autobiographies that were actually written by a woman. Uh, so a little bit about Vasilyeva. She was an orphan, having lost both of her parents in a single week at the age of five. Eep. Yeah. She was brought to the landlord's estate and lived with several other orphans there on the estate, um, which actually a concern for orphans apparently was sort of a thing among mm-hmm. noble landowners. Um, it was relatively common. I'm not really sure if it was like points in the afterlife or if it was just they were just, you know, had some humanitarian feeling, which, you know, could have been. Well, if you need stable households, you know, to make up your surf uh, collective, I guess you probably want to make sure that people are still getting raised so they can get married and then... Yeah. Contribute to a household later. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, it would be interesting to dig into what was behind that, if there was some kind of special advantage to ha- having some kind of estate servant that was not tied to another family. Mm, yeah. Wonder. Mm, I don't know. Or it could just sort of be fashion. It could just be fashion, too. Yeah. yeah. Like a bunch so of anyway, she was one of those. Yeah. An orphan on a landlord's estate. So apart from that little bit, this story is not otherwise marked with compassion. I'll just warn you straight up. <laughs> oh, good. In One fact, of these. this uh, first vignette is actually about a guy that I, in my mind, I picture this guy as, um, you know, that painting from the original Ghostbusters movie? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Vigo v- the Carpathian? Yes, Vigo. Yeah. Yes, Vigo. Vigo the Carpathian. Second Ghostbusters, actually. <laughs> oh, was it? it that was, was, yeah, oh, it was okay. Ghostbusters 2. Ghostbusters 2? Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, this guy, in my mind, I'm picturing him like, like that painting guy. Are you okay. going to put that on the website? I should. You go to the Carpathian? I should. I should. I should yeah. I'm really getting tense about what this story is going to go into now. <sighs> okay. So the first of, of these linked vignettes is called If Walls Could Talk. Oh, Ooh. good. <laughs> you ready for this? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. She writes, I am a surf maiden belonging to the Bulletin family. Our masters were important people. My old barin, which is spelled basically like baron almost, like I imagine it's cognate mm-hmm. to baron in the yeah. West. It means landowner, landowner or master. My old barin, Peter Gorgievich, often told his daughters how their grandfather, Georgi Nikolovich, he's the painting guy, mm-hmm. was greatly favored during his time of service at the court of Tsaritsa Ekaterina Alexeevna. Better known as Catherine, Catherine the, Great. the Great. Very good. Coke. <laughs> After the Empress's death, Barin Bolitin resolved never to serve anyone else and moved to this village called Debovia, where he lived until his death. Before he died, Gorgie Nikolovich built a church in the village in honor of St. George the Victor and St. Catherine the Great Martyr. And to this day, the priest makes mention of the church's builder, the Boliarin, which is archaic Russian, I guess, for noble master. And his name was George, essentially, right? Which guy? The... Or Vigo the Carpathian? Vigo, oh, yes. His so name, he's yes. doing George and Catherine. Exactly. It seems to be like writing on the bathroom stall. Yeah. To build this church. And... Exactly. 
So, so to, to make it a little more explicit, right? His patrons in here that he's trying to impress yeah. are George Guy, the nobleman, and Catherine, the Tsarina, right? Oh, I thought it was a nobleman building the church. I'm sorry, I didn't call it that. Well, I imagine he's not the artist. Oh, yeah. Okay, wait. Okay, okay. So I, was I got assuming you. Know. He was doing the commission and just yeah, it's... sort of like George plus Catherine forever. Yeah, I thought that was what <laughs> yeah, I was basically saying. yeah, basically that's it, right? But it's symbolized by Saint George and, and Saint, Saint Catherine. Catherine. Yeah, yeah, we got each other now. Okay. Oh, if only I was that horse. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hear that Catherine the Great had reforms, asking Russians to do it with more and more fingers. <laughs> um, interestingly... Sorry, we can cut Cat... that too, but <laughs> there's a reputation. Interestingly, <laughs> Catherine the Great was an extremely unfavored uh, ruler. Um, she was very not popular at all with the serfs. Um, she actually converted a lot of state peasants uh, to serfs, actually came down on the Cossacks pretty hard, too, at least the Zaprovian ones, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, to this day, the priest makes mention of the church's builder, the Boliarin, Georgi Nikolovich, that he was cruel and would flog not only his own peasants, but those of the neighboring landowners as well. Mm. The police didn't dare so much as show their noses on his premises. To greet them and other uninvited guests, two bears and six hunting dogs were kept chained outside. <laughs> I bet they got along great. Yeah. <laughs> the barin would order the dogs to be released as soon as the footmen announced the arrival of a district police officer or police chief at our main gate. <laughs> Release the bears. <laughs> They'd learn... I hear their neighborhoods our police can't even go into. <laughs> exactly. Because of bears. <laughs> because of bears. Oh, Chicago. It's nothing but bears. Yeah. <laughs> Chicago, it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> terrible there. city. Very bad things happening there. Very bad things with bears. <laughs> bears. <laughs> Way too many bears in Chicago. Sad. <laughs> they very bad news bears. <laughs> oh. Sorry. Anyway, he continues. They'd learn their lesson then. They might not be bitten, but would certainly be scared to death, and their clothing torn to shreds. She goes on to say, though, that Georgi repented his sins before his death and asked the forgiveness of all his peasants. Then his son, after he died, Peter, took over and was quiet, timid, and compassionate. What do I do hmm. with these bears? Yeah. <laughs> he was nice at first, till he married a woman from the Caucasus, who was, quote, a beauty on the outside, but had a cruel heart, unquote. But they only lived on the estate on the estate in the spring. But the rest of the year, Vasilyeva was free to run all over the yard and in the master's garden. Life was pretty much good, as long, so long as they weren't there. Mainly that Caucasus wife that yeah. she didn't like. But then word came that they were moving to the estate permanently. So, okra, right? It was then that the full extent of Georgi, the deceased one now, the painting guy, it was then the f that the full extent of his legacy finally came to light. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she writes... They're going to find bones in the garden, aren't they? The master wrote to the steward, Check, Nicanor, to make sure that the whole house is in good condition so that we'll be able to live in it during the winter as well as the summer. This set off a rush of activity. Peasant men and women were herded into the courtyard. The men cleaned up the garden, which had fallen into neglect, while the women plucked grass in the yard. Nikonor Sevlovich, the steward, walked around the whole house with his hammer, tapping the walls to inspect their condition. Sure. In the office, he noticed that one wall was cracking and bulging forward, and immediately he sent a courier into town for the stonemasons. As the masons began breaking down the wall, they noticed a human figure oh. there mm. between the bricks. They took fright, stopped working, and ran to the steward. We must send for a priest, Nikonor Sevlovich, they said, and the steward went himself to fetch Father Vasily, our priest. He was an ancient old fellow who remembered our Barin's father. When Father Vasily saw human bones stuck inside the wall, he crossed himself and began to pray. Lord, lay this murdered man your slave to rest. Take his name, Lord, into account. Later, he pointed to a large portrait in a golden frame of a handsome barin. So there actually was a yeah. portrait of him. With curly gray hair. That is the builder of our church, the Boliarin Georgi. 
said the priest. I remember how he would flog his own peasants to death. Hmm. The Lord alone knows the sins of men. We Orthodox people shall pray for both, for the slain one and for Boliar and Georgi. I wonder if they ever checked the laws of the church for bounds. Yeah, mm. they should. Or Cask of Amontillado. Yeah. After the offices for the dead men had been performed, the priest ordered the bones to be taken out of the wall, placed in a box, and carried to the cemetery. He himself walked at the head of the procession to the graveyard, just as though he were wearing a chasuble and carrying a censer. Later, Nikonor Sevlovich summoned all the house serfs, strictly ordering them to hold their tongues about all that had happened that day. Apparently it's a thing in Romanian folklore that you have to wall someone up in the wall up one of the builders in a church if the church is going to stand or a bridge really a human sacrifice yeah. kind of deal like uh they did that in like for pr- pretty much every ancient culture but yeah. how recent in romania well i don't know that it was practiced but it's a folklore thing oh in, like, okay the recently enough that it's written down and hmm. called romanian that must cast kind of a pall over the romanian construction business it's like <laughs> okay we're missing somebody uh i guess he drew the short straw <laughs> yeah right yeah, the stories are usually that the builder has to go find someone to be the human sacrifice, make some kind of rash oath, and then has to wall up his son or something like that. Oh, so, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. No. Okay, the next vignette from Vasileva is called The Little Masters Arrive. And by the way, these titles, I just stick these titles on them so that we have something to call them. But anyway, The Little Masters Arrive. So anyway, that was how Vasileva discovered the full extent of the old master Georgi's proclivities, but it turns out that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh-oh. Next, she meets her current masters, Georgi's descendants, and in particular, his grandchildren. Ah. Yeah, who turn out to be the ones that carry on his certain tradition. Do they when set th- fires and kill animals? We'll see. When the bailiff receives word that their masters will be arriving on Whitsun Day, which I guess is like Pentecost? Pentecost, usually? Pentecost, yeah. Speaking they, of fires. They pull out all the stops to present a grand welcome. What season is Pentecost, by the way? Spring. Well, it's a certain number of weeks after Easter. Yeah, so it'd be so, late spring. Late yeah. spring, yeah. okay. Young birch trees are uprooted and replanted in the courtyard. Old serfs and cripples of the estate crowd in, some of them bringing communion loaves from Whitsunday Mass as gifts for the nobles. Vasilya Eva and the other orphans are lined up on either side of the porch holding bouquets of lilacs. And then, finally, the masters arrive. She writes, We were all standing there by the porch holding our flowers when two carriages, each drawn by four horses, flew into the yard. In one of the carriages sat the master and mistress. Peter Georgievich was already old, with hair white as snow. Varvara Ivanova was no longer young, though still stately in appearance. Her respectable mustache made her look more like a man than a woman. <laughs> so, not a Circassian beauty here. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's yeah. a really nice mustache, well, that's though. That's true. Like... Mm-hmm. So that was the, the Caucasus wife, of course. Yes. Yeah. So this mistress um, pets Vasilieva and the other orphans on the head while chatting with their caretaker. Well, the master Peter breaks out some vodka and shares it with the male house serfs. But Vasilieva's attention is actually drawn to the master's three children. A son named Igor, 16 years old. An elder daughter of 14 named Praskovia. And a nine-year-old daughter named Sonia. And she continues, Both of the young mistresses were wearing round straw hats and yellow burnouses. The older one was at that time in her fourteenth year. She was rather thin but entirely pleasant and bowed to the house serfs with an affecting smile. All of us like her very much. The younger daughter was nine years old, with a complexion cracked by scrofula. Mm. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. It was said that she was sickly, and one of the footmen carried her out of the carriage and set her on the porch. When she suddenly threw a tantrum about something, Anna Vasilevna, the oldish-looking governess, scurried over to her. We could hear how she told this young mistress, It's naughty to throw fits, Sonichka. All your serfs are looking at you. <laughs> so, don't act up in front of your serfs. Yeah. Right? Uh, when does that ever work on a child? <laughs> yeah. No, that's not going to work. 
the fit intensified. Sonia Petrovna stamped her foot at the governess and began spitting on us children. So yeah, it didn't work. The young barin, Egor Petrovich, tarried longer in the carriage than any of the others, dressed in a black jacket and wearing a peaked cap with a red band. He was, at the time, sixteen years old, and the picture of a barin. Tall, slender, with black arching eyebrows and an oblong pink face. He went past the house serfs proudly, as though he didn't even notice how everyone around was bowing down to him. He turned around only once to give a smack to his shaggy-haired dog, and then, playing with his cane, went into the house. So there's your dog abuse. I was wondering when we get to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Vasilieva finds that the village becomes actually more cheerful with the presence of the masters, or rather more interesting, at least. She eavesdrops on the gossip of the footmen and the maids to hear what is being said about mm-hmm. the masters. So here's the gossip about the new celebrities in yes. town, basically, right? The mother, Varvara, the Caucasian, Caucasian, the mother, the Caucasian wife with the mustache, yes. right? You just not saying Caucasian because that would sound Caucasian. Confusing. Caucasian, Caucasian. It's Caucasian. And that that is, is what where Caucasian is. comes from. Is from the yeah, Caucasus, you're right. Okay, so. yeah, yeah. So Caucasian. She's Caucasian. Hence why the Circassian beauties were so famously beautiful. Because mm, they, they were the whitest, renowned whitest for being... of white skin of yeah, anyone. So. Exactly. Thank you. That's not an editorial. <laughs> so anyway, no one likes her. <laughs> not only does she beat the servants mercilessly, but she digs at her husband Peter for not doing the same. So nobody <laughs> likes her. Meanwhile, Peter, the husband, they say is basically whipped, right? He's, he's by her. Literally right? or figuratively? Figuratively by her, but who knows what goes, be- goes on behind closed doors. If right? those walls could talk. <laughs> exactly. His wife pushes him around, and if she sets the dogs on someone, he comes out and he starts pounding his cane on the ground and shouts till his voice gets hoarse. But the funny thing is no one actually fears him because they know he's not actually going to do anything. Right. Literal or figurative dog-sicking. Which... <laughs> also, do they still have the bears? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That part's not clear. But I find it kind of interesting that he's the only one who's actually a nice guy in this whole story, right? But nobody cares yeah, no one takes because they're used because... to being treated so bad that when they finally have someone who doesn't treat them that bad, it's like, oh, he's the teacher that I can get away with. Exactly. With. Yeah, so. Well, it's a hard act to follow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so the elder daughter, Praskovia. What's the gossip about her? She is either nice or at least plays nice to dig at her mom. So she's the mm, snotty teen who's right. trying to... <laughs> because she often um, intercedes on behalf of the servants and gets a slap in the face from her mother for interceding on their behalf. So is she humanitarian or is she, you know, trying to rebel? I don't know. It's not clear. That's some fascinating teenage rebellion, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Humanitarianism as a, as a dig against your mom. (laughs) Yeah. To be fair, probably a lot of adolescent leftist politics start that way, too. So <laughs> I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So the youngest daughter, Sonia, is turns out to be a little tattletale. No surprise for mm-hmm. a youngest daughter. Never. She goes running to her mother to tell on anything that the serfs do, for which they were sure to get a whipping with a birch rod. And then there was the son, the young barin, Igor. The young maids all admire his handsomeness, but complain that his endearments were painful, quote-unquote. That's how she puts it. <laughs> mm. Uh-huh. Mm. So apparently he is fond of pinching them and lashing them with a switch, leaving welts even. And his mother is unable to rein this kid in. He's that wild and is in fact quite fearful of him. So everybody's afraid of the mom, and the mom is afraid, afraid of, of this guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, meanwhile, he carries himself with perfect noble haughtiness, saying nothing to the footman except for things like, take this or give me that. Mm-hmm. Then Nicanor, so this is part of the gossip circle, right? Even the steward is taking, is taking part in this. Mm-hmm. Nicanor, the steward, joins in, and he says... As far as appearance is concerned, Igor Petrovich 
and that portrait of his grandpa, Georgi Niklovich, are as alike as two drops of water. <laughs> so, back to the picture again. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yep. And his character, too, will be exactly like that of his grandpa, who flogged people to death. So, he's definitely the new Vigo in yeah. this story. So the endearments will get more painful. Keep track of everybody. If anybody starts to disappear and there's a new thing in the wall... <laughs> exactly. Then Nikonor tells a story of when the young bardin Igor was but a child of eight years old. Oh, boy. Mm. Okay. Is it going to involve a cat or a dog? <laughs> <laughs> Let's find out. So Nikonor tells, I was his tutor at the time and had a terrible time with him. And I dared neither to put a stop to his behavior nor complain about him to the mistress. In the maid's room, he once crawled under the tambour, which is apparently an embroidery frame. Hmm. It still doesn't really help me very much, but it's some kind of furniture. And so not a hammer dulcimer. I'm guessing it's maybe some sort of like um, freestanding frame so that you can just, you know, hunch over it and work on it. Um, let's Google this real quick and then cut it out. I think I've seen pictures of these. The... Definition 2A, an embroidery frame, especially a set of two interlocking hoops between which cloth is stretched yeah. before stretching. Oh, okay. So it's you're stretching a cloth like a drum. Right. So it's a yeah. drum-like thing. Yeah. Okay, so it's then. a drum-like embroidery device. Sure. For embroidering. That makes sense yeah. why they had that name. Then. Okay. So in the maid's room, he once crawled under the tambour and began piercing the girl's bare legs with pins. Apparently as they were embroidering, right? The maids were crying and didn't know what to do. They couldn't complain to the mistress because she'd only slap them across the face and wouldn't stop her son in any case. So, Nicanor says, I went into the maids' room and they beseeched me, Nicanor Sevilovich, take the barin's son out from under the tambour. He's made our legs bloody with all his pricks. I pulled Egor Petrovich out and, grabbing him by the ear, told him, Go, complain to your mommy and daddy about me. So... Seated he's like, I ain't going to take this. Yeah. 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 He's like, screw it. I'm going to get in trouble either way. At least I'm going to teach this little brat a lesson, right? Yeah, I'm sure that he's probably had plenty of pent-up angst against him as well for right. ruining all of his tutor lessons probably with stupid tricks like that. One of the times when actually having high heels would come in useful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you just kick him. Yeah. Yeah. Plausible deniability. Right. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> dear. I'm sorry. So I just seem to have had a reaction when something pricked me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Reflexes. Oh, it's in your eye? Sorry. So anyway, this is the final paragraph okay. to Nicanor's story about when the young Baron is young. So he just, like, you know, told him who was boss, right? Right. Well, he says, The whole day I awaited the mistress's blows. But what ended up happening was something different. At dusk, I lay down on the leather sofa in the footman's room and nodded off. Luckily, I soon woke up and noticed that my head felt hot and that the room was filled with a stench like that of burned hair. I grasped my head and, finding it aflame, seized a sofa cushion and extinguished the fire. I was thinking, how did my head catch on fire? When I looked around and saw the Barin's son standing behind a wardrobe, watching me and laughing. He had a box of sulfur matches in his hand. And there ends his story. <laughs> I am very curious as to how the Baron's son, uh, grandson ended up. I'm hoping that emancipation comes around the corner pretty soon from <laughs> 2016. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to... Yeah. You don't want to extrapolate too much about why the revolution happened, but... <laughs> Yeah, so that's the kind of masters that she's now dealing with, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, third vignette out of four, we have the mistress's bath. Mm. Mm. So we just learned the character of the young masters of the estate, mm -hmm. at least according to the gossip. Right. But Vasilieva soon gets a chance to confirm this firsthand. Oh, dear. Mm -hmm. When she chances to meet the younger daughter, Sonia, along the road in the village... The daughter immediately asks her who she is and where she lives, and then tells her governess, I want to play with this girl in my room. Oh boy, you're going to lose your hair too. <laughs> yeah. And then Sonia develops a particular fondness for Vasilieva. So and much How old is Vasilieva at the time? Sonia's nine. 
Um, probably similarly aged. Okay, I would so guess. this is late reminiscence of when she was still yeah, a pretty little already kid. Already, yeah, she's writing this much later. Yeah, yeah. She's and like, I already returned oh, this book here. to the library, so I can't look it up. So, right. Oh well. So one night, the little Sonia throws a tantrum, scratching the governess's face till it bled, <laughs> saying she won't go to sleep without Vasilieva, whom she calls Akulka, some kind of nickname that she's got for her. Hmm. She says, I want her to sleep next to my bed on the floor like a little dog. <laughs> so there's some more dogs for you. Yeah. yeah. And so Vasilieva is fetched from the village, fancied up in a pink dress with two flounces, and taken to the master's house. When she arrives, Sonia is screaming, Bring me a kulka! Bring me a kulka! Then when she sees Vasilieva, she finally calms and goes to sleep. Meanwhile, Vasilieva is told to just sit still in the chair in Sonia's room and not move a muscle. Because <laughs> they don't dare want her to not, you know, fall asleep, right? So, like, don't wake her up, whatever you do. So Vasilieva is just sitting there, and of course it's terribly boring. But later that night, she somebody comes in and tells her to take a sponge to the mistress's, to the mistress Varvara's room. And she's told it's just through that door. And here she is, here is what she sees when she does so. Oh, dear. She writes, My attention was seized by a large green bathtub standing in the middle of the room. Two footmen were pouring buckets of water into it. Not far from them, the mistress was sitting on a sofa, entirely naked, except for one leg from which the stocking had not yet been removed. Aksuta, who was a maid, was sitting on her knees in front of her, trying to unravel some lace from the stocking's suspender. I bowed to the mistress, handed her the sponge, and already wanted to leave when she stopped me. Akulka, she said, since you've woven thread with Ustina, surely you know how to untie a knot. This fool, and here she gave Akshuta's face a jab with her foot, made the knot so tight that it will have to be cut open. I prostrated myself before the mistress, and with my teeth, unraveled the knot in a second. Lifting my head, I saw the old body in the room. Which is the, o the old guy, yeah, right? The nice the guy. Peter. Yeah. yeah. Not the little one. He was wearing a Bokhara house coat and carried a newspaper. The footmen were still in the room, bustling around the bathtub. Frowning, the old barin looked around the room, glancing cursorily at the footmen, at me, and finally resting his gaze on the mistress. It, it, you might have thrown at least a sheet on yourself, Avra Ivanova, he said in a gentle voice. Why? she replied. It's hot in this room. Well, d d don't you see? he stammered, looking over at the footman. There are men here, looking at you. What men? cried the mistress with surprise. Here are my serfs, my footmen. Do you think they would dare look at me, their mistress? They're no more to me than those two chairs over there. To which they still silently think, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you probably wouldn't want more attention than that. No, from her. no, 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 no. <laughs> the Baron shrugged his shoulders, took a candle from the table, and left the room. You hit it three times, dude. At least three. I mean, seriously. <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and in truth, our mistress, Vavra Ivanova, was a shameless woman. She not only appeared naked in front of the footman, but did other things in their presence as well. Dot, dot, dot. That's all that's there. <laughs> all that would pass the censors. <laughs> yeah. So where, where does uh, Vas... Where's, where's, where's this uh, narrator? When, when, when in the story does she get therapy? Please tell me it's soon. <laughs> probably as soon as... Um, possibly the... it's called writing a memoir. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's probably the only therapy that she actually... I can just see her just to. staring at the page. No, I better leave this part out. They'll never believe it. Yeah. yeah. So that was the mistress, Vavra. Vasilieva became the equivalent, basically, of a whipping boy for little Sonia. And that was basically her role. Right. And she actually did receive beatings when Sonia wouldn't learn her lessons. So almost literally a whipping boy. So she's in this the case, proxy. Whipping girl. Oh, yeah. boy. Good. Varvara claimed that it was to shame Sonia into behaving, which is what a whipping boy in tradition was meant to do. Right, like, you'd better shape up or I'll beat up your toy. Exactly. It seems to be the mindset. Yeah, that was it. Wow, I'd, I'd like to do that for a dead idea. Yeah. Time. Given okay. that there's so much empathy uh, that abounds in these children, I'm sure that worked perfectly. I know. <laughs> right. Their mother is teaching them about shame. Their yeah. mother who's the, the, the nudist. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, Vasilieva says that it was only really because Varvara simply enjoyed beating children. 
that she um, that she beat her rather than to shame her. So anyway, all the children feared her, the mistress. But one day something happened that turned even Varvara quiet. And as this is our last story for today, it shall turn us quiet too. Oh, great. One of these. <laughs> okay. So final vignette for a few crumbs of bread. So, Varvara has this dining room. With, so, she has this dining room window that opens onto the garden. Mm -hmm. And in good weather, she likes to have tea at that window. And one day, she pours herself some tea and takes a bun from a bread basket. Meanwhile, out in the garden, there's this young orf orphan boy named Siryoshka, who is, he's like helping the gardener. And ever since the masters came to the estate, the monthly ration of food has been reduced. Um, so they actually have been needing to beg for food in order to get enough. And Siryoshka would often beg Vasilieva, bring me at least a little crust of bread. I'm horribly hungry. Because he knows that she actually goes to gets that to estate. Go you know, yeah. yeah, gets to go inside. So anyway, now he's working in the garden on the estate. And that day, Siryoshka sees the mistress having tea at the garden window, as she usually does. And Vasilieva writes, like a hungry dog, Seryoshka fixed his gaze on the mistress as she ate her bun and poured cream into her tea. As ill luck would have it, for some reason, the mistress left the dining room, leaving her half-consumed cup of tea and half-eaten bun behind on the windowsill. Seryoshka could see that there was no one in the dining room, and that he could grab that piece of bun. From within the garden, he would have only to stretch out his arm to reach it. He ran to the window, seized the bun from the windowsill, but hadn't managed to put it into his mouth when the mistress came back in. Seryoshka was so frightened that he even forgot to hide the bun. He stood there, holding it, and staring at the mistress like a fool. "'You piece of trash! Why did you steal my bun?' queried the mistress. Seryoshka, quaking with fear, was silent. The mistress saw the gardener and shouted to him, "'Avde, cut me a switch!' Only then did Seryoshka come to his senses and took to his heels as fast as he could. Hopefully he's tucking the bun in his mouth. <laughs> hopefully. Uh, hopefully he's in a pocket. He wants some more air flow going through. Girls, people, catch that boy, cried the mistress from the window. Seryoshka takes off like a bullet, and the maids run after him, and so did the gardener. But suddenly they lost him in the trees. There was no trace of him except for one spot near the fence, where some high grass had been trampled down, after which was a well. The gardener said he would climb the fence, but told Vasilieva and the other girls to go around the fence and meet him at the well. We still hadn't reached the well by the time Avde met us, running as fast as he could for a boat hook. Oh, dear. Seryoshka is in the well, he cried to us without stopping. It had rained continuously for the last while, and the water had risen to the very top of the well. Little bubbles could be seen rising in it, rising and falling. By the time they had brought boat hooks and extracted Seryoshka, he had already succeeded in giving his soul over to God. When they laid the drowned boy on sackcloth and lifted him up, one of the footmen noticed that Seryoshka had something clutched inside his little fist. They unclasped it and found the piece of bun. All the house serfs wept and said in a single voice, A person has died for a few crumbs of bread. So that's what happened to the bun. <laughs> yeah. And that is our final story for this episode. Hmm. Well, yeah. yeah. It's a feel-good story of the year, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Lessons learned? <laughs> I'm not really sure there was a moral there. <laughs> Everything all... I don't know. Maybe the, our original person who who told like the advice of how to be a clever surf had it right all along. Yeah, you know? like it's gonna go bad no matter what. So just try to get yours in the end. <laughs> is that her moral of the I'm story? I'm not sure if it would work with these people though. Yeah, <laughs> this, this is kind of sociopathy as engendered like throughout generations. You've got the dad and the middle daughter, and everything else is pretty much just a lost cause here. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, that's a little taste of what it was like to live with masters, or what it could have been like. I'm sure there were good ones, too. But, you know. So, there you go. 
Well, that's it for this episode, folks. Thanks for being on the show, Nick and Anna. Thanks for having us and telling us these things. <laughs> you can't unhear it. No. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. We will not steal your bread. Please don't beat us. <laughs> Please, I don't want to go in the wall. Please. Okay, everybody. So next week, we have a very special interview for you. We have Kristaps Andresen from the Eastern Border Podcast and PDRP. And he will be talking to us about the Soviet Koho system, which was the communist agriculture system that they had um, during the USSR. And we will be comparing that to the surf commune, drawing similarities, drawing contrasts, and having a whole lot of fun while we do that. So you don't want to miss it. Kristaps will be on the show. Do you have a dead idea? If so, we would like to hear about it. Write us in at deadideaspod at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media at at deadideaspod, on our website at www.deadideas.net. The website has lots to explore, including a map, references, and links for this series, as well as beautiful graphic design by Rachel Westhoff. It will also have a map by Adam McKithern, who has joined our podcasting assembly as a map maker. Excellent. As of today, as of this recording. Last but not least, be sure to support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. For your modest contribution, you too can get your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. Check it out. See you next time, everybody. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. For a large enough contribution, we will sit by your bed and not make any noise to help you get to sleep. But I'm not bringing sponges. (laughs) Like a little dog. (laughs) Yeah.